Good evening and welcome everyone to this evening's LSE public lecture by Dr. Linda Yue on China's economic growth. I will say more about Linda in just a couple of minutes, but on the event itself, this lecture, as you know, will address, among other issues, questions on the causes and the sustainability of China's economic growth. Linda will show us how looking at the evidence generates a number of surprises, even to those who are already quite familiar with China's economic performance, but importantly as well, how looking at the evidence in the way that she will present to us gives all of us insight on the reforms that will be needed to keep China's growth going in the decades ahead. My name is Danny Kwa. I'm Kuwait professor here at the LSE. And this event is an LSE public lecture co-organized with the Confucius Institute for Business London, or Sybil. Now, this event will in part be a strategic briefing for business, but in part also, obviously, a lecture on Linda's new book, The Making of an Economic Superpower. This event is being recorded. And so if I could remind you to just put your cell phones on silent or vibrate to keep the event going smoothly. Should no technical difficulties arise, and we hope none will, a podcast of this event will be available sometime soon after this evening. Now, the order of business now is that Linda has agreed kindly to speak for about 45 minutes, following which there will be a question and answer session. As you can see, the red-shirted stewards in the audience will have roving microphones, so if you wish to ask a question in that later session, please just wait until you get one of the microphones and then briefly identify yourself and pose your question. This evening is scheduled to end at 8 p.m. At the LSE, as many of you who are familiar with how these things work, we like to keep the conversation going, not just within this particular venue, but more generally. And so for those who wish to tweet as this event proceeds, we greatly encourage you to do so. Use the hashtag LSEChina to do that. Turn now to the speaker. Linda is an old friend of mine and an old friend of LSE more generally, having worked at the school previously. She has represented the school on numerous occasions, not least now through her association still with both the Center for Economic Performance and LSE Ideas. Linda is both a trained lawyer and a trained economist, currently director of the China Growth Center and fellow in economics at St. Edmund Hall, Oxford University. She's adjunct professor of economics at the London Business School and will be visiting professor at Peking University. From next month, she will be BBC chief business correspondent presenting a weekly business program on the BBC World News. 
Now, a lot of this will be familiar to you already because, as you know, in social media, Linda has simply a massive footprint. And she will be well known to everyone who participates in and is interested in modern dissemination of critical facts and important ideas in economics, finance, and business. If you could just join me in welcoming Linda to the stage. Thank you very much, Danny, for that um, kind introduction. Um, I always find introductions very embarrassing, but I'm, I'm actually kind of relieved that Danny told you I'm both a lawyer and an economist. So that should ratchet down your expectations as to how entertaining this talk actually is going to be. <laughs> um, so if you don't fall asleep, then I think we'll have, we'll have achieved something um, this evening. Um, but first, let me first say um, a really big thank you to the LSE for hosting me this evening and for kindly um, showcasing my book. Um, I've been associated, as Danny has said, um, with the LSE for over a decade, and I have met some very extraordinary people um, here, including Danny, and I always worry when people take time out to come to a lecture in the evening that it wouldn't be uh, entertaining for you. Um, but I'm relieved because Danny is the chair, and we are going to have a good amount of time for discussion. And he's the only economist that I know who can talk about Justin Bieber and economics in the same sentence and have it make sense. Um, so thank you very much, Danny, for uh, chairing tonight's um, lecture. Um, before I get started um, in terms of um, some of the themes around China's growth that I'm going to try and just introduce and then look forward to having a discussion with you, um, there's just a couple of things I should probably uh, first just, um, just point out. I mean, one is um, I, I, I do actually like to stress that I am an ABC. So I am an American-British-Chinese. I'm of Chinese origin, and I'm a dual British-American citizen. So that actually means uh, that I can criticize equally the Americans, the British, and the Chinese governments um, for the things that they do, and to heap praise uh, where it's due. Um, and, uh, and the second thing that I, I want to um, highlight um, here, which I think is very important in terms of um, anybody um, discussing China, which is the growth story for China is an extraordinary one, and it's constantly evolving. So uh, I'm not expecting to present you with any answers, what I'm hoping to do is to show you the evidence as to what the growth story has been, what's generated, what accounts for it, and then raise a few issues in terms of how this could actually evolve in the coming decades, because that, to me, is the most fundamental question. And the reason why that question is so important is because um, I became interested in looking at China um, not just because I'm of Chinese, um, but it's because China, it has been the most extraordinary growth story over the past few decades. Um, and the things that have really struck me are China, in terms of poverty, has lifted 660 million people out of abject poverty over the past 30 years. Now, that's one-tenth of the world's population. 
And that's an extraordinary feat to have achieved. And it's not just those who've been lifted out of poverty. It's actually those whose standards of living have improved substantially over this period. Um, so I'm talking about people in urban areas and cities who 20 years ago um, would have lived in a, a flat um, which, ha which um, was allocated to them by their work unit, their state-owned enterprise, where um, they wouldn't have had the option of um, uh, buying for themselves somewhere to live or uh, buying a car. And that kind of improvement in standards of living is ultimately um, what to me, is most impressive about the Chinese uh, growth story. So let me make a start. Um, and I'm sorry about this. Um, <laughs> there's going to be a couple of screens here which are completely gratuitous plugs of my book. And I'm just going to confess right now, my, this is my eighth book, but it's the first book where my publisher is actually putting me up um, in literary festivals where I'm arranging speaking slots to not clash with J.K. Rowling. <laughs> So their expectations are very high, so I'm so sorry. I'm just going to move on now. <laughs> um, so what I'd like to do um, is really to do this talk in two parts, which is first to say, to look at what has actually driven growth since 1979. And of course, 1979 is when market-oriented reform started in China. So that's typically where we would date the reform period from. And the second part of the talk, I really want to go into the rebalancing challenges. These are the challenges for the next phase of Chinese growth. And in fact, it's really what the Chinese government considers to be the goal for the next 30 years, which is to overcome the middle income country trap. Now, what this refers to is, I'll show you in a moment, that it's it's extraordinary to have grown at nearly 10% for 30 years. And the next 30 years will pose, in many ways, some of the hardest challenges for China, because that'll make the difference between uh, bringing people into the middle class versus overcoming the so-called middle-income country trap and joining the ranks of rich countries, a goal and aspiration um, that the Chinese government has for its people and, to me, uh, one of the uh, most crucial phases and most crucial challenges for China actually lies um, in the next few years. So the very first graph I want to show you is simply China versus the G7. Now, this is the top black line is the United States. Um, the red arrow pointing to that dotted line points you to China. And what this actually shows you is that um, in the last 30 years, China has overtaken in size um, all of the major economies of the G7. Um, okay. Because we are, if you, I don't want you to look too closely at this graph because you might notice that the UK economy is now smaller than France. So we're just going to move on. <laughs> but simply to say that um, in uh, nominal GDP terms, China is about half the size of the United States already. And that's why you're beginning to get a lot of predictions as to when it will overtake the United States, just in terms of um, aggregate size. But ladies and gentlemen, what I said before, I truly mean, it's not really the size of the economy that should really matter. It's the standards of living that should really matter. So this next chart shows you um, the average income for China. This is US dollars, PPP adjusted, adjusted for purchasing power parity. And where China is right now is about 8,000 US dollars on a PPP adjusted basis in terms of average incomes. Now, based on, uh, this is uh, data from the IMF, 
uh, based on the current forecasted growth trends, China is going to hit that middle-income country trap where average incomes will be about 14,000, 15,000 U.S. dollars just within the next few years. And after that level, countries begin to slow substantially um, in terms of growth rates. And that's really the challenge, how to join the only 17 countries in the post-war period um, or so that have actually overcome this trap and joined the ranks of rich countries. And that is the overwhelming uh, challenge and to me one of the most important ones for China. Now before I go into um, the next uh, part of the talk in terms of reforms and growth rates, I want to take a quick poll of the audience. Um, the, the, the question is this. The subtitle of my book is the making of an economic superpower. So can I have a show of hands uh, for those of you who think that China will not be an economic superpower? Anyone? Okay. Okay, a couple of hands. Uh, how many of you think China will be an economic superpower? Okay. How many of you think China already is an economic superpower? <laughs> okay. Um, I think it's, there's, there's a lot of things we don't know about the future. The reason I, I, I ask that is that um, the other thing that um, I always do like to stress is where China is headed, I can only give you what the evidence tells us um, has been in the past. It is very difficult to know where the future is headed. We can talk about policy uh, direction. But the one thing I really want to stress is, as with any economy, there'll be a lot of positives about China. There'll be a lot of negatives about China. So um, I was going to the U.S. to give a lecture once, and um, the very first thing the chair um, asked me, uh, he wasn't an old friend like Danny. He didn't know who I was, and he said, just tell me, Sorry, this accent is terrible. <laughs> um, you know, are you a China bull or a China bear? And um, and I basically, you know, and I basically, I've had the same stance uh, for about a decade, which is I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in terms of Chinese growth. So. In the early part of the 2000s, when China was really emerging and beginning to make an impression on the world stage, I was considered to be quite a China bear because <laughs> mm. I was always warning and cautioning about the challenges, the, the difficult reforms to come. And at, that was at a time when China was really booming, joined the WTO, and lots of people were very excited about Chinese prospects. Um, and now you have many who are very worried about where China is headed. They look at a lot of things like the um, housing sector. They look at the slowdown in growth. And, they, and so now it seems as if I'm really quite bullish on China. And I would say, you know, as with any economy, there's no, there's no it, it balances everything. There's no, I don't think there's really any side one has to be on. It's simply where the evidence points you and then you make the best judgment possible. Um, okay, so let me uh, go into now some of the reforms and GDP growth. Um, I might take a poll at the end to see if any of you have changed your mind that I've actually depressed you <laughs> um, into uh, worrying about China. Um, but um, let, me, let, let me carry on. And what this actually, this chart shows is it's real average GDP growth. And what I've actually identified on it, although it's a little bit difficult to see, 
are some of the major institutional reforms which have happened over the past 30 years. So the HRS at the very start in rural areas gave incentives to farmers, and this leads on to uh, reopening stock markets in 1990-1991, the open-door policy, and then, as I said, WTO membership in 2001. The reason that I put it on the graph in this way is because these major phases of reform don't necessarily result in fast growth straight away. In fact, a lot of these reforms um, happen by what's considered to be uh, a no-encouragement, no-ban policy. So the Chinese government sort of bans some of these things to start with, like the HRS, and then when it works, they decide... Okay, no encouragement, no ban. If it works, they roll it out. And so it's this, it's this spirit of experimentation which actually has really worked in China's favor. And this doesn't mean that every policy will work well. And this also means that China's impressive growth has had a number of peaks and troughs. And the very stable growth rates we've had over the past 15 years or so, well, that was really quite a global phenomenon. If you look in the earlier period, China has certainly had phases in terms of its uh, business cycle, and that's always good to bear in mind. So we don't get too worried that growth should dip, um, because it's very normal for economies to have this kind of cycle. And let me just say one word about a rule of thumb that's very useful to know, which I think uh, many of you um, will have heard of, which is how do you translate an impressive growth rate into uh, what that means for the size of the economy? Well, the rule of thumb is that you take the number 70 and you divide it by the growth rate. So if China's been growing in nearly 10%, it means that 70 divided by 10, its economy doubles in size approximately every seven years or so. And that is pretty impressive. Now, if the UK grows at 1%, just don't finish that calculation. (laughs) Um, And that's where you get the compound growth effect. And this is why economists that look at growth, um, including the Nobel laureate, Um, Lucas says, once you start thinking about it in these terms, it's very difficult actually to think about anything else because the improvement in standards of living um, with these uh, growth rates are just uh, phenomenal. I'm now going to try and break down the growth drivers. As I say, the first part of the talk is really to try and look at the evidence of what's driven this impressive growth and try and parse out which parts of it are sustainable and which parts of it, uh, well, are going to have to require more reforms in the next um, few years. So 9.6% average GDP growth rate since 1979. Um, When you break down the evidence, it turns out that about 60 to 70% come from capital accumulation, labor accumulation, so factor accumulation, and about 30 to 40% from TFP, so that's a measure of productivity, total factor productivity, how efficient all of these factors actually are. Now, if you look at this breakdown, it actually looks like TFP in China isn't as low as some people um, have begun to uh, worry about. But I want to break this down a little bit further just to give you a sense as to what's actually hiding uh, behind these numbers. So if we look at factor accumulation, 60 to 70% of growth has been driven by adding capital and labor. Half, in fact, of growth has been accounted for by capital accumulation. Now, that's pretty normal, actually, for a developing country. Um, 
But it does also explain why it is that China has had such a strong focus on investment because for a poor country in 1980 where average incomes were less than 300 U.S. dollars, um, this is your engine of growth. But obviously as investment rates reach very high levels in China, uh, this is not something you can continually uh, rely on. And 10 to 20 percent comes from adding workers. Now, that actually seems pretty small, um, given that China, well, 1.4 billion people, it's got the world's uh, biggest population. The reason is because this is adding workers. In China, in the centrally planned period, between 1949 to 79, um, had very high, rate, high rates of female labor force participation. So a lot of uh, people work a lot in China. And there is slowing population growth, which is why just adding workers hasn't been as big a driver in the Chinese growth story. Now I want to break down TFP, and I think this is really getting to some of the core issues as to sustainability, because ultimately a country can only grow well if it has strong TFP growth. So if you look at that 30-40% of growth, which is driven by TFP, and you break it down into human capital, reallocation, and innovation. This is what it tells you. 11 to 15% of that growth is accounted for by adding human capital. That isn't actually very high, and this is also something which points to an area that China has begun to increasingly focus on as it reaches a middle-income stage of development. So in other words, human capital makes labor more productive. Um, China has a very large semi-skilled labor force, very high rates of educational attainment at the secondary level. But increasing that at the tertiary level, adding to that human capital, that requires having more universities. It requires a supply of educators. It requires investing in higher education, and they've begun to do that over the past decade or so. But over 30 years, um, this has not been a huge driver of its growth, but it has the potential to become larger. And in fact, I would argue it absolutely has to become larger. Now, another 8 to 15 percent of TFP doesn't come from innovation, which is ultimately what you think of in terms of TFP, how you actually make, um, how you actually increase your technology, raise your level of productivity. Instead, 8 to 15 percent comes from reallocative efficiency. So what does that mean? Well, China has undergone some of the most dramatic transformations over the past 30 years. Um, state-owned enterprises moving into the private sector, increasing urbanization. Last year was the first year in which the urban population was just over half of the total population. The urban population was really only about 10 to 20 percent at the start of reforms. So what this is showing you is that there's a lot of reallocation of factors from one sector to another, and that can give you a productivity boost. Okay. That sounded a little bit abstract, so I'm going to give you an example. Um, Danny mentioned I used to be a lawyer, and I worked in Beijing uh, for a New York law firm. And I had a Chinese secretary who worked for me. And so one day she came to my office and said, um, could I speak to you about something? And I thought, oh, <laughs> sure. Um, and she, she sat down and she said, I just wanted, just wanted to tell you um, that in my old job, um, my boss is grateful if I did any work. 
at this firm, you actually expect it. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and that, she used to work for a state-owned enterprise, and obviously she's now been moved into the private sector. Her productivity has gone up a lot just through that sectoral shift. But once she moves into the private sector, you don't expect her to have that same productivity boost year after year after year. So these are considered to be one-off productivity improvements that won't be repeated. Um, but when you look at TFP, which measures the residual, whatever isn't accounted for um, in terms of accumulating workers or capital, it's all conflated within it. And this reallocative efficiency is nearly as important as innovation in accounting for Chinese growth. And for those of you who are worried, um, she and I are actually rather good friends, and um, she still takes me out to eat very spicy Chinese food when I go to Beijing. <laughs> um, so it was actually a good conversation. Um, <laughs> But that's, that's why once you move people into the cities, when you move into uh, state-owned enterprises, that kind of productivity boost was never uh, sustainable. It's a one-off. And that's also one of the reasons why a lot of studies of TFP in China show a dramatic slowdown in TFP in the middle of the 1990s. Now, by that stage, a lot of the state-owned enterprises at that point have already been downsized. China went from having 10 million state-owned enterprises in the mid-90s to just 200,000 by the late 90s. So as that sectoral shift completes, you don't expect those one-off productivity improvements to continue. And that's why innovation is so important. But once you break out these parts of TFP, you're left with about 16 to 17%, which is accounted for by innovation. But for those of you who are now thinking, but how much of that is imitation, you're absolutely asking the right question. So if you break this down in terms of how much of this innovation is imitation versus um, technology derived through uh, invention, what you find is that up to two-thirds is actually from imitation. So this is, by the way, not surprising because what you typically get for a developing country and the mechanism for them to catch up is that they do imitate the existing technology which is out there. So they catch up by moving towards the technology frontier. And that's also the reason why it's harder for countries which are rich to grow very quickly because they're at the technology frontier and developing countries as they do that imitation in that catch-up process they should be growing more quickly so the fact that Chinese innovation um, a lot of it is due to uh, imitation shouldn't be surprising but as China does catch up and as its intellectual property rights regime is now conformed with the West and it's beginning to need to push um, the uh, innovation front, it does actually also tell you that if only 6 to 13% of growth can be accounted for by innovation through real technological improvements, then there is a lot of need for China to invest in R&D, to boost um, innovation. And one of the ways that they're doing it, which I'll talk about um, a little bit later, is that um, the, what's the easiest way of becoming a world-class company? 
just go and buy one. <laughs> and that's why, that's the going out policy, the going global policy. And that's a big driver behind it, um, which I'll focus on um, in a bit. So to summarize, in terms of contributions to growth, factor accumulation in China has been very important in terms of its growth rate. Again, not really surprising. Um, capital accumulation, accounting for half. Labor accumulation, a lot less, 10 to 20%. TFP, the really crucial uh, set of factors, 30 to 40 percent of growth. But as I say, as you strip it away, innovation is about 6 to 13 percent, human capital 11 to 15 percent. These are the two sets of factors that have to be invested in and improved as China aims to join the ranks of rich countries. So let me move on to the main set of rebalancing challenges um, that China confronts as it seeks to overcome the middle-income country trap. So the innovation point um, is here clearly uh, point four because there are signs that imitation limits have been reached in some sectors, obviously not in all sectors, um, but that is one of the issues that China will need to do, which is to rebalance away from imitation and move much more towards innovation. The other rebalancing factors first is to increase the reliance on their own market, so less on exports. Now, China does have a remarkably open economy. Um, its export plus imports as a share of GDP is 70%, which is, which is double that of the UK, which is considered to be an open economy. Um, now, China has also overtaken the United States as the world's biggest trader, and so it already accounts for about 10% of global traded uh, goods and services. Now, if you look at what's happening in the West, and you look at that percentage, um, they're not really expecting to increase imports, exports by very much. Um, and so there, this reorientation is really a rather realistic readjustment uh, to where they currently are in terms of market share and the situation in the West. But let me be very clear. Uh, increasing reliance on own market, because they now have a middle class to sell to, is not the same thing as not wanting to boost exports. It's just the aim would be to relatively increase domestic demand so that it accounts for a bigger share of GDP than net trade. So in other words, the United States with roughly the same global share of trade as China, its trade accounts for only about a fifth of GDP. Domestic demand is much more important. And that is ultimately the model of a large open economy uh, that China could also aim for. So you're big in absolute size because um, China still needs to globally integrate, but um, your economy is more driven by domestic factors, your own middle class, and that's ultimately um, more possible now, now that they have an income level that allows them to have a, a bigger um, market. The second point here is to raise consumption and reduce inefficient savings, and I'll say um, a lot more about that because clearly this is uh, one of the uh, challenges um, in terms of China. Uh, the third point is to grow the private sector and to reduce the distortions 
from the state-owned sector. So if you want to increase innovation and productivity, obviously you want to promote the more productive sectors, and that is indeed rebalancing away from SOEs towards the private sector. Innovation I've mentioned, and then uh, the fifth point, continued opening, including firms going global. And this is basically rebalancing, pulling in foreign direct investment um, and rebalancing towards pushing out earned direct investment. So one of the markers of a country hitting a stage, a higher stage of development, is that outward foreign direct investment um, begins to outweigh inward foreign direct investment. Because inward FDI was the source of uh, capital investment from foreign companies, technology transfers, knowledge spillovers, um, and that's very helpful um, in terms of imitation and catch-up growth that China has been very successful at doing. But at some stage, a country becomes a capital exporter, and China could therefore create global companies of its own uh, to become world-class multinational companies to acquire the expertise that they're weak at so that they can begin to move up the value chain and to acquire those innovative technologies. And that is another form of rebalancing. Now let me show you uh, what each of these rebalancing entails in terms of facts and figures. So the very first thing is rebalancing towards services. That's another way of trying to rebalance towards your own market, towards the non-tradable sector. Because services are partly non-tradable. Um, you can trade services, but a lot of services are local services. So for instance, um, if you get a haircut, it's a local service. Okay, you could fly to Paris to get your hair cut, but that isn't the case for most people. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of these services would be um, locally provided, labor-intensive, creates employment, um, and it shifts away, actually, from not necessarily industry, but agriculture, because agriculture is an, still a pretty sizable share of Chinese GDP, but China only has 7% arable land. So this is a sector that is expected to begin to shrink. And in fact, the service sector, um, in terms of size in China, is about 40% of GDP, 43% in the latest figures. For a country at that level of development, it really should be about 50%. So this was a goal that was missed in the last five-year plan, and it is a goal in this five-year plan. And if you think about developing services, as I say, there's a lot of positives, um, including employment creation. So one of the puzzles in terms of Chinese growth last year, which was the slowest in 13 years, at 7.8%, China exceeded its employment growth target last year. 11 million jobs, over 11 million jobs are created when the target was 9 million. And one of the reasons was they'd begun to reorient towards a more labor-intensive sector like services. So this is also, by the way, a huge source of opportunity because as China opens up its service sector, um, it's going to invite more investors and invite more non-state sector firms to begin to develop that. And that is critically important in terms of uh, where they're headed in terms of uh, policy aims. Um, and in fact, I've long been of the belief that if China was very keen on manufacturing the 80s and 90s, including attracting foreign investors, then the decades of the, of the uh, millennium will be towards services, inviting services companies in uh, to develop that sector. Now I'm going to hit the second rebalancing, which is the raise consumption as a share of GDP. 
Now, consumption has been rising impressively in absolute terms, but as a share of GDP, it's actually been declining down from about half of GDP in the early 90s down to as low as uh, 30-some percent, about 35 percent. It's probably a bit undermeasured, but the trend is certainly uh, declining as a share of GDP. So the reason that's an important distinction is that in absolute terms, retail sales have been growing at double digits. There is a pretty healthy urban consumption base. But the question is, why is it declining as a share of GDP? Now, one of the reasons is that means the share of income going to labor is less than the share of income that's going, to, for instance, to capital. So raising incomes, increasing urbanization, which is part of the reorientation towards a bigger services sector, creating a suburban area around cities, providing more services, bringing migrants into uh, the cities, which is part of their current reform agenda, that will actually raise incomes and raise consumption as well. But there's another part of the savings Uh, puzzle which needs to be addressed, which is the converse of consumption is savings. So if you break down what has actually grown in terms of savings, what you find is that household savings are high, but they've been high for about 20 years. It's about 22% of GDP. The increase in savings has actually come from the corporate sector. So firms are now saving as much as households. So in order to reduce the savings rate, you also have to ask the question, why are firms saving so much? Now, a couple of reasons that research is looking into, researchers are looking into. Uh, one is, of course, uh, private firms save. They uh, don't have good access to formal capital. Um, and state-owned enterprises have high savings because they're taxed lightly and they don't pay a great deal in terms of dividends. So there are different reasons for high rates of corporate savings. But in order to reduce the savings rate, which is about half a GDP, it does require addressing each of these components of savings uh, different separately. Um, the This I find to be actually one of the hardest um, topics, which is reducing the state sector. Now... I mentioned there that you can see from the chart, which is the blue, um, state-owned enterprises as a share of industrial output. In the middle of the 1990s, you can see a a dramatic drop in terms of SOEs um, and their share of industrial output. They accounted for about 80% of industrial output in 1978. The red bars are actually urban collectives so and rural collectives. If you included the collective sector, they were 100% of the economy. But since the late 1990s, the state-owned sector actually hasn't shrunk um, in terms of industrial output. It's actually expanded. Um, and state-owned enterprises account for, well, just about, um, a, just about 30% um, of industrial output. And... The private firms, which are in purple, um, obviously account for the bigger share of industrial output. Um, but state-owned enterprises, I mentioned, went from 10 million down to 200,000 in the span of a few years. Um, but there's not a very strong indication as to whether or not they will continue uh, to be effectively privatized or reformed away. Now. They're important for jobs, which is one of the reasons. Um, State-owned enterprises still account for more than one in five jobs um, in urban areas, um, and that's one of the issues. 
Um, but if you look at notable productivity differences, it actually tells you that continued reform of SOEs is necessary. So if you look at this chart, which gives you uh, labor productivity differences, state-owned enterprises and privatized state-owned enterprises, so uh, firms which are SOEs that have been privatized, they have the lowest uh, labor productivity of across compared to uh, various private enterprises. And it's the same if you look at return on assets. SOEs and collectives um, have the lowest return on assets as well. So in terms of productivity, return on assets, um, SOEs are not as productive as the private sector. For a country that needs to move into innovation um, and uh, promote more productive enterprises, this is an issue. The bulk of bank credits going to state-owned enterprises, that's also another issue that has to be uh, considered and addressed um, and I would say uh, dealt with. I mean, one of the reasons, by the way, that state-owned enterprises still remain are that the Chinese government are very keen to have global players, and a lot of these enterprises are in sectors that they will consider to be strategic for development, so they support them so that they can become uh, global multinationals. Now, um, once, though, you start to peel back and say, what's strategic? I think then you start to get into some very interesting discussions about whether a sector really is strategic. Um, but every conversation I have with um, uh, economists on this front, um, if we query why the telecoms industry is strategic in China, um, I'll hear um, something along the lines of, but France thinks that dairy is a strategic sector. So countries certainly have some funny definitions. Um, but the, the reason I point this out is obviously if you're trying to boost productivity, this is an issue to think about. Speaking of productivity, there are actually signs of innovation in China. Now, China has poor protection of IPRs, um, and this is quite well known. Um, this chart actually plots uh, the number of patents granted in China against per capita GDP. And because of WTO accession and adopting a global IPR regime, the Chinese have stepped up promoting uh, patents and formal protection of innovation as they want firms to innovate. So there is actually a positive a climb in both in terms of patents as well as per capita GDP, despite a very uh, flawed um, legal system. So I do point that out um, because obviously to me it's a very open question as to whether or not um, innovation um, can really take hold in China. Um, there are a lot of positive signs, but there's also worrying signs. And ultimately, it really must um, for China um, to rise to the uh, level, to grow to the level that it wishes to. It needs to produce the Steve Jobs of the world, um, the Bill Gates of the world the Sheryl Sandbergs of the world. Um, and finally, going global. This rebalancing, which I find is one of the most exciting, actually, phenomena coming out of China. This is uh, foreign direct investment, um, outward flows from China. So what you find is that China has always invested overseas, mostly state-owned enterprises. But in 2003, um, it did its very first commercial M&A deal. So this was the very first commercial um, 
global deal done by a Chinese firm uh, investing in a foreign firm. And it was TCL buying the Thomson brand of, China, of France. And this was the very first deal. And as you can see there, from 2003, uh, the growth in outward FDI was exponential. So the going global policy, the going out, bringing in policy, really took off when commercial deals were permitted. And this is China's attempt, as I say, the easiest thing to do is actually to buy global companies rather than reinvent the wheel. And this is the push to make sure that China can acquire the technologies that it needs in order to grow. And in fact, if you look at the areas in which the Chinese um, corporations invest, they invest in areas which are areas in which the Chinese are hoping to foster, the area in which the Chinese uh, development is weak. So unlike other M&A deals where typically firms which are very strong go out and buy other firms because they're globally competitive, the Chinese outward FDI deals are premised on buying the kinds of uh, companies um, that they need. And this has been described in the literature as investing on the basis of competitive disadvantage. So if China needs more service firms, then it's likely to invest in financial services. And that's indeed what it's done. Um, if China needs to buy more technology companies, then it will go out and buy, um, and aim to buy, I should say, technology firms, um, including uh, Rover here in this country, which... Um, I must say at the time, some British policymakers were really surprised uh, that anybody wanted to buy Rover until I pointed out it is new technology to a developing country. Um, and, you know, so there are, it is all about the, the level that you're at. Um, but obviously there's issues about China going global because um, from what I've just described, China has capital controls. Um, its companies invest overseas when permitted. Um, a number of the deals are state financed or financed by uh, Chinese policy banks, and that can lead to backlash um, and concerns about Chinese investment. And to me, this is one of the biggest hindrances about China's growth, which is you've got these really able, productive private firms. If there was more transparency about um, the structure and financing, then it would actually help these firms to expand um, globally, which is what a lot of these Chinese uh, private firms would be very keen to do. I am not going to do this. You'll be relieved, <laughs> which is, um, but for the students in the audience, if you are wondering how these reforms should all tie together, uh, the Salter Swan model, which is the open economy version of ASAD, would tie together these exchange rate reforms, reforming the external sector with reforming the internal uh, economy, so the real interest rate that dictates more efficient investments. Um, You'll be relieved. I'm just going to move on. <laughs> um, and just to say that um, if you're interested in this, I, I, um, I do encourage you uh, to, um, uh, to read. It is in my book, and I have written about it elsewhere in terms of why it is it's very crucial for China to reform capital markets as well as um, the exchange rate in a rational sequence um, so that it can benefit uh, from um, greater liberalization without destabilizing itself. Moving on, um, the next decades of growth uh, reform. So I'm going to finish with um, 
I look ahead to what I think the next 30 years would hold. Now, I'm just going to confess now, this is not a forecast. It's not a prediction. Um, it's more an aspiration. Um, I was fortunate enough to advise the Chinese government on their 12-5-year plan, which goes until 2015. I advised on the 2030 plan for China, which was a joint project between the World Bank and the State Council uh, Development Research uh, Center. Um, and that was led by Li Keqiang, who's just been announced as the new premier of China. Which, by the way, he's the first Chinese premier to have an economics degree. Is that a good or a bad thing? <laughs> um, but anyway, so I've had a glimpse as to uh, why they've thought about uh, these reforms in, in such a long time horizon, 5, 10, 20, in fact, it's really 30 years. And these are my sort of aspirations for where I hope the Chinese uh, reforms will lead to. Um, and to me, uh, this is, these are the crucial steps for them to really achieve a stable society. So... By 2020, which uh, by most every uh, economist, um, China will need to have restructured a large part of its economy for the reasons that I've described. By 2020, its average incomes will hit that middle-income country trap level. So the restructuring, the rebalancing that I've described, they're going to have to achieve a lot of that if they hope to be able to grow beyond 2020 and overcome that middle-income trap. By 2030, if they really want to have reached the uh, ranks of rich countries, enjoy the standards of living that uh, we have in the West, they will need to have innovation and productivity as growth drivers. We need to be able to see um, some uh, very exciting entrepreneurs and innovators appear um, by that stage. And by 2040, I think China needs to, by that stage, have stable and strong institutional foundations to underpin the society, the market, the country, without which um, there would be, I think, um, a lot of concern that whatever growth they've achieved ultimately doesn't have the right foundations to improve that standard of living, which I think is ultimately why anybody really cares about um, growth figures. And another positive bit of news is that um, for the very first time, the uh, head of the Chinese Supreme Court has legal training, just been appointed this week. So... Um, <laughs> So anyways, so ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for uh, your attention. Thank you. Thank you, Linda, for your excellent lecture on the stage setting for China's growth and its possible sustainability into the 2040s. Now, we have time for questions, so as I suggested earlier, if, if you do have a question, just put up your hand, make your, identify yourself, and then one of the stewards will come to you quickly with a roving mic. Please just identify yourself quickly and pose your question. Okay, so if we can start from in front here, and then I'll come around and back. We'll take questions in clumps of three or four. Hi, my name is Ropa. I'm studying um, 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 economic history here at the LSE. Um, I wanted to ask in terms of China's glowing global strategy, um, what role do you think em emerging markets in um, Africa or Latin America play? And also I wanted to ask about China's aid policy. Um, 
what's the rationale behind it and how does it relate to economic growth, um, considering that China is still a developing country itself. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, there was a question in, in the back, in the middle, the gentleman in the... Okay, go ahead. Joel Gladstone, uh, 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 Professor Emeritus. A um, couple of questions. One, uh, I heard a lecture by Lester Thoreau at MIT a few years ago, and he estimated that had China taken the environment seriously into account, the actual growth rates would have needed to be pared back by about 2 or 3%, and how this will impact in terms of your estimation of, of China's growth in the future. Uh, second question, um, what has been, why is it so difficult for, in terms of increasing consumption, for China to create uh, the kind of um, retirement, pension support, and, and health systems that seem to be required for people to be willing to spend a higher proportion of their income? Um, I'll stop at that. Okay, thank you. Now, there was, um, the, the gentleman in the black jumper... Back here? Yeah, yeah over there. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, Eric Chavez, uh, Atmospheric Physics, Imperial College. Um, just to bounce on a question that you threw to the audience, um, do you think it, is, uh, it has played uh, or not a role that uh, the top leadership of China uh, has been embodied by engineers uh, rather than economists or lawyers in uh, uh, well, the, the evident success of China in the last 20 years. Okay, thank you. So you're studying engineering at Imperial, is it? <laughs> All right, we'll take one more question before I turn over to Linda. Okay, over here. Um, uh, yeah, uh, considering the relationships between the two countries, um, what does China's economic growth mean for Britain? Okay, can I turn to you now, Linda? And then we'll come around and get another round of questions. Thank you very much for, um, for the uh, questions, which are uh, very well uh, put. Um, I'll just start from the beginning. Um, the role of emerging markets in Africa and Latin America in terms of um, China's development, and actually in many ways, um, there are a number of people who now talk about South-South trade um, and the corridors, the links amongst them, because uh, China's sheer size makes it, like the United States, like a large open economy. So um, when it needs resources, uh, it does invest um, predominantly in uh, places like Africa, Russia, Middle East, Latin America. So it's become, in many ways, for a lot of these countries, even a more important trading partner um, than the United States. And it has a market as well um, to offer. So I think in terms of um, Chinese uh, growth and impact, I think there's a lot of positives um, in, uh, for other emerging markets. But by the same token, there's also a lot of, I would say, uh, competitive challenges it poses for other countries because obviously um, it's very difficult to compete against um, some of the, the sheer uh, size of Chinese uh, trade in a lot of sectors, which is something the African um, nations are worried about. So they don't want to end up uh, becoming commodity exporters. Um, but um, a lot of the um, investment that China has done in these countries are positives, 
um, but it's about these countries making sure they extract the same spillovers that China benefited from so that they can uh, learn and develop as well. And to me, that's something which uh, really needs to be uh, looked at. In terms of Chinese aid policy, um, foreign aid policy, uh, while I was at the LSE uh, a few years ago, um, I received a phone call in my office, and it was um, somebody from the uh, Chinese Foreign Ministry that um, I had uh, dealt with before. And the question was, so what are the parameters of an aid policy that would be ideal? <laughs> Um, I'm not an expert on aid, so I promptly referred um, him to a number of people who were experts on aid. So I know that this is something they're really looking into in terms of um, how to, um, how to uh, participate in aid in a way that's consistent with where the global economy is. And in many ways, the Chinese aid policies are not coordinated um, with the global um, the rest of the global economy, and that is an issue, and I think that is something, again, to, to watch. But as I say, it's a developing, it is a developing area. Um, the, uh, the Lester Thoreau point, um, I, it's, I think his estimates are probably based on the green GDP figures, which China, before France, <laughs> um, started with their happiness adjustments, um, was actually asked the World Bank to calculate. Um, I'm not sure if this is true, but the version I heard was that they didn't really like the calculations they got, so then they stopped publishing green GDP figures. Um, so the 2 to 3% taken off of growth probably refers to that. Um, I find it, it's very difficult uh, because it hasn't been taken into account in terms of uh, their growth rates in the past, what that would have uh, done to it. So I have no reason to, sus to, to suspect otherwise. I think the World Bank probably did as, as good a job as you can on that. In terms of looking ahead, I think it's a huge issue, mostly for standards of uh, quality of life purposes, standards of living. Um, I was in Beijing twice in January, and um, the, we were in a hotel uh, lobby, and I was meeting some colleagues after a conference for a drink. Um, and we sat down, and I looked around, and I said, is it a smoking lobby? Because um, I, and it turned out that the, because we were in the lobby, the hotel doors were opening, and the smoke was getting in. So it's, it's as bad as I've ever seen it. And I think for lots of reasons, China may well be at a stage where it has just announced it's going to adopt EU-level emissions in Beijing. So they are um, beginning to feel they can ta begin to tackle it. Um, social welfare provision, I think sometimes it's, it's underestimated how much is already being done um, but at the same time, what's being provided is very imperfect because China is vast and very good provision goes to former employees of state-owned enterprises and civil servants and government officials, but not so good provision, obviously, in rural areas where they're starting from scratch. So I think it's very uneven, but yes, it's absolutely the case that um, I don't think the Chinese are going to head down into a they're not going to go into a, a European welfare state model. They're not going to um, provide government as a share of GDP in China is very low. It's about 21%. Um, it's, by the way, just at the East Asian average, which is about 22 23%. They're not going to go into the kind of Western European model. So that means, however, they need to have a private sector to also 
be available to provide social insurance, and that's why it's taken so long to develop because that pretty much doesn't exist under central planning. So they're almost starting from scratch in that sense. But it is, I think, one of the biggest areas of concern for, um, especially uh, Chinese policymakers in urban areas. And so I think they are looking into it, and there is that is indeed one of the reasons why um, precautionary savings motives are so high. Uh, to the um, the non-economists asking the question about has China done better because it's been run by engineers versus economists and lawyers. Hmm, Danny, hmm. what do you want me to do with this one? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me, let me. I think he's managed to insult me twice, but um, <laughs> um, but to be fair, um, if you look at the um, uh, the uh, economics trained uh, politicians in this government and the lawyers that run the American government. Hmm. <laughs> um, let me just simply say, anything I would have to say is pure speculation. So I, I'm not going to, uh, to say much on it. <laughs> Except to add, Li Keqiang is both a lawyer and an economist. He has a PhD in economics from Peking University, having read law as an undergraduate. Are you going to change your vote now about China being next economic superpower? <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the question here about the effect on the UK. Um, I think that the there's so much I could say about this. I'm going to try and uh, limit myself. And simply to say, uh, the Chancellor in the budget yesterday um, pointed to disappointing net trade as a reason for why the growth forecast for Britain is continually downgraded. Um, so growth rate this year is 0.6%. It's halved from the forecast from last year. And you have to ask yourself, what's going wrong with net trade? And one of the issues is obviously our main market is the Eurozone. Mm -hmm. So if our main market was instead a foster-growing countries like China, other emerging markets, which if you look at the trade figures, um, the trade with those countries is up. So if we could increase the share of trade with markets which are growing and shrink the share of trade with a market that's shrinking, then that, I think, would help a great deal. And in fact, one of the most interesting things about the UK-China relationship is that the UK has a trade deficit in goods, but a trade surplus in services. Um, so that means that even though the UK hasn't done as much in China, partly it's because what we sell um, services is a sector which is only now beginning to open in China. So I see huge opportunities if um, the government um, and businesses could get the right information to really push that area. I think the potential is, is just immense. Um, but you don't want me to go into the lack of growth strategy and, and all that for the government. So. Okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, second round of questions. I want to take from some people upstairs because there's a whole group of people upstairs as well. So the woman in back first, by the door. Oh, thank you. I have a question related to the restructuring of Chinese economy. Uh, is it going to be totally controlled by the Chinese government? Do you anticipate that the private enterprises and the middle class of China um, are going to have their say in the target or the outcome of the restructuring? Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, the woman in front here, I'll come back to you, but the woman in black in front. 
Um, I have a question. Uh, you mentioned the next, for the next decades, one of the aspirations is by 2040, uh, China will have stable and strong institutional foundations. But with, we've seen recently there's been some social issues in China as well because of the political system. Uh, I just want to get your opinion. Would this actually like, hinder economic growth perspective if the political and social issue doesn't get addressed um, like... No, Thank you. Then the gentleman in the blue Oxford shirt, right here in front here. Uh, thank you very much. I'm Nilsan, a lecturer at Burbank and Source. Um, it, it's very interesting to see that even though we are five years in the crisis, global economic crisis, many mainstream economists uh, continue to uh, teach neoclassical uh, uh, economy. Um, what do you think the Chinese government have learned from, uh, from the crisis? And do you think, or how do you see the long-term vision of the Chinese government? Are they on the long path to socialism? Okay. One more question from upstairs. So the gentleman over there. Yes, right next to you. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Alan Tom, uh, alumni from LSE. Um, my question is about the urbanization you just mentioned. Um, do you think, in your opinion, is that really the, the way for China to achieve sustainable and growth at least for the uh, coming 10, 20 years. And uh, also, does that mean expanding the big cities like Shanghai or Beijing, or does that mean uh, building new cities in, in the poorer areas? Okay, thank you. So I'm going to call close to that round, and I'll come back to people. I know lots of people still have their hands up. Okay. Linda, I'll going. speed up a bit. Yes. Um, in terms of restructuring the economy, um, I, I think one of the issues is obviously this is a process which is very much dominated by the political elite. I don't think the Chinese middle class or society have much of a say. The evidence I've shown you is very consistent with what lots of Chinese uh, economists themselves produce, which is fed into the government. And in fact, one of the hardest things about restructuring in the ways that I've described, especially state-owned enterprises, is that I'll give you an example, SESEC the body which is set up, which nominally owns state-owned enterprises, they've been wanting to increase dividends for some time. And China's recently announced a very large-scale policy to redistribute income, to reduce income inequality, lift the minimum wage to 40% of the median wage, um, by funded by a 5% dividend um, on paid from the revenues of state-owned enterprises. And this has encountered huge amounts of resistance because those who run the state-owned enterprises are politically powerful, in fact, more powerful than the guy who had SESEC. And so I think this is one of the reasons why those reforms haven't uh, progressed further. And it's one of the hard issues that I see in China's path. Um, there's a 2040 political system, social issues. Um, I'll tell you uh, what happened when I was in uh, Shanghai a few months ago. Um, I'm, um, I'm a director of a company, and the board went to Shanghai for a visit, and I arranged for us to have dinner with a prominent Chinese academic. And I thought he was going to spend the dinner talking about you know, um, corruption, uh, the state-owned enterprises, and slowing growth. And instead, he spent the dinner complaining about the one-child policy mm. <laughs> and all the social mm. problems that he now sees with prosperity. And so I think once the, you know, the urban classes really see social and political issues as those that have to be reformed, I think 
that is one of the reasons why, if you look at at least the uh, tendencies uh, the, uh, from Xi Jinping, the new president, Li Keqiang, there is a lot more talk about political reform and um, beginning to be more responsive. Now, I think this is going to be a very slow-going process, and I have no crystal ball to predict where this is going to go. But I think one of the things that has kept the uh, Chinese system going is that they are actually quite responsive to what the um, urban middle classes need. And I think you know, for them to continue down this road, they may well find that serious political reform is what's needed, and you can't simply have more and more rule of law and institutions without giving people a say as to how the society is run. So to me, that's one of the big unknowns. Um, in terms of uh, what has China learned from the global financial crisis, uh, the best anecdote I have for that one is um, the uh, before the global financial crisis, the uh, Chinese um, officials used to get these phone calls from um, American officials uh, telling them why their banking system needs to be reformed and why they're in danger of a banking crisis all the time. And um, I was told that after the financial crisis, um, not only were the Chinese officials ringing the Americans, um, they were ringing them all the way down to the level of a desk clerk, ringing a desk clerk <laughs> to say... By the way, <laughs> do you know how not to run a banking system? <laughs> and so I think what this has actually um, probably shown is that um, there is, you know, nobody has the right benchmark or the right model. And um, any, um, any analysis of the Chinese economy, um, I've always stressed, can't really be based on one set of models. So, for instance, um, if you look at China as a developing country, you want a Lewis model to pick up the sectoral shifts, the turning point when it becomes um, more expensive to grow. But you also want a transition theory because obviously you have to then overlay that model with transitioning from central planning. So to me, most countries are unique and pretty complicated, and China very much so. So I think the lesson they've probably taken is that they pick and choose the, right, the policies that seem to work and have them meshed together, which is why it's also hard um, to generalize from a country as big as China, and lots of developing countries want to emulate its growth, but I've always cautioned them against any easy emulation for that reason. Um, in terms of uh, party socialization, um, China is a practical <laughs> uh, system. Um, it is a communist system in name. Um, I'm just going to leave that one there. Mm -hmm. And um, in terms of urbanization, um, I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in the urbanization policy, but I have some doubts as to how orderly it can be. The reason I'm a, I'm a huge fan of it is that I think it has been extremely... Um, unfair and inequitable for migrants to be second-class citizens. Mm. And I think by removing, um, by extending urbanization and to begin to remove the stigma of being migrants or, or rural residents, that can only be a positive um, for uh, society. The problem, obviously, is the pace of urbanization. Is it possible to cope with it? You don't want to end up creating a massive urban slums. Um, and, but I think in general, if you have urbanization, um, it could actually justify continued uh, investment in terms of roads and soft infrastructure, social housing. There's a lot of positives which can come from it. And that, to me, is, is, is also 
ultimately why I think the policy is a positive on, an, on balance. But obviously, it is a very tough thing to do, which is to control migration in a country that's already had the biggest migration in human history. So. Very good. Thank you. All right. Um, so Kent in front first. Uh, Ken Deng from LSC. Uh, wonderful talk, very uh, enlightening, and, and uh, welcome back, uh, Linda. Uh, my question is very simple. Uh, in the past 10 years, according to the World Health Organization, China's death rate increased by one per 10,000, I think. So this is really alarming. This is actually uh, quite compatible with China's uh, deteriorating uh, environment. Uh, so this is the issue. Secondly, um, because the sex imbalance among children, so this is really the se almost the second generation of uh, one-child uh, uh, policy. And so uh, I see the danger that before China becomes rich, it, it becomes uh, basically the engine uh, run of steam. Um, so there was a question in back, the gentleman over there. Yes. Hi, Michael, Chief Investment Strategist at the UK Fund Management Company. Um, thank you very much for the most interesting discussion on the past and future of the Chinese economy. Um, one aspect that was um, probably missing was the, was the US consumption boom over the last two or three decades. If you see a Chinese consumption boom, how does that kind of play out in terms of the global um, economy? The woman in uh, pink. Uh, thank you. According to the theoretical as well as the uh, empirical evidence, one of the most uh, important challenges for the countries who are in the middle uh, income stage is the income inequality. So my question is, given the uh, increasing income distribution gap in China, to what extent do you think that this might issue in China's case in terms of uh, avoiding the uh, middle income country trap? Thank you. Just one more question. So the other uh, gentleman in back has, has his hands up. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation, Linda. I remember the last time I met you was a couple of years ago when you gave uh, another presentation at uh, another university, and you become more beautiful two years old. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, uh, my, 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 my question is, uh, like, you, uh, you go on. You just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay. So uh, basically, uh, you, you identify that uh, innovation is uh, one of the key points for Chinese economic growth in the next uh, uh, a few years. But the things, uh, the, the, the finance in China for Chinese uh, middle and small enterprise and private enterprise to conduct innovation, they're quite limited. You know, they, they, are quite, they got very limited access to the bank, bank loans. They're quite hard to get credit from student-owned banks. And there's another channel, like for example, to get uh, the, the finance from uh, the equity market. It's all very, very hard, because uh, you know, the stock exchange market in China is gloomy in, in the last uh, few years. So I mean, what's the, what's the channel for financing? For those, can, for those uh, companies who want to conduct innovation in, in China from. You know, okay, thank and, you. Yeah, okay. Thank you. you. He didn't say anything about how I look, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Linda, y'all go. Okay. Um, Kent, uh, thank you uh, very much um, for the questions. And um, I recommend Kent Sen's book, by the way. It's, um, he's an economic historian here and very well worth reading. Um, yeah, I, I think the environment is an issue because of, um, as you say, the direct impact on health. I've always thought this is one of the, this is what's going to cause them to make a change in terms of the environment. It's not really external pressure or anything else. Um, I think the sex imbalance is a big issue, and that is one of the byproducts of the one-child policy. That is beginning to be loosened. And I think one of the biggest challenges for China in terms of loosening the one-child policy is whether or not they can reverse the decline in fertility rates, which typically happens as countries grow richer. Um, the uh, correlates to that, the way you could, re you could uh, reverse that would actually be to either reduce women's education or incomes, because that's really the problem. <laughs> Please don't quote me on that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just, just to say that is just, it's a, it's a product of a country getting richer. You see it across the OECD. Um, but uh, I am not an expert in this area, but I have spoken to those who are, and they suggest looking at the Scandinavian model, where if you increase health care and other provisions, then it does support a stabilizing, perhaps even increasing fertility rate. And as you and I both know, Chinese love big families. So I think culturally, I think they actually have a chance of reversing it, so long as the government mm -hmm. will reverse it. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, uh, the U.S. consumption boom, the Chinese consumption boom. Um, have you been recently to um, Harbor City in Hong Kong? Um, if you ever go to Hong Kong, it's on the uh, Kowloon side, and it is essentially a shopping strip that looks like Bond Street, um, and it is entirely caters to mainland Chinese shoppers. And it is, it is, I mean, you buy noodles in the basement and you, <laughs> and you shop these high-end stores. I mean, this consumption boom is pretty significant, um, and. So long as it's not based on debt or leverage, I don't see as much a problem as the U.S. consumption boom. Um, and to me, uh, that's probably one of the, the key issues. Um, I'm speeding up a little bit because I know we're, we're short on time. Um, income inequality. Um, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago the Chinese have announced a very big policy to address it. And it is, I think, uh, one of the big uh, key um, issues to, uh, to consider. Urbanization will help because that will help actually lift migrant incomes. Um, having a more a redistributive system would help. I don't see a lot of push in terms of the taxation side, but in terms of, as I say, lifting the bottom, that's much more what the current 35-point blueprint is actually headed. Um, and the Gini coefficient for China is high, um, and... You know, are they rich enough at this age to do something about it? Um, I would say yes, and I think given this blueprint that's come out, I think they are consider seriously considering it as well for no other reason than for stability rather than for growth. Um, in terms of the um, innovation uh, question from the back, I think this really touches on one of the uh, issues that I had, didn't really have a chance to really cover, which is... Um, one of the problems is that the more productive private firms that I was mentioning, they do have restricted access to credit. And one of the problems in the Chinese financial system is that they don't have a market clearing interest rate. 
Um, there isn't an interest rate uh, which actually properly allocates capital. Um, they have a lending rate and they have a deposit rate. And there's a 300 basis point, so three percentage point difference mm -hmm. between the lending rate and the deposit rate. And that distorts lending and deposit decisions. And in 2004, they reformed this by lifting the ceiling on the lending rate and the floor on the deposit rate. And you can imagine what happened. Lending rates went for private firms and deposit rates went this the other way, technical terms, for savers. And so until they, and they're beginning to now um, close that gap. And as they do that, these kinds of capital reforms, I think, um, are essential. Um, in terms of access to finance. It gives banks the right incentives um, to allocate properly based on risk. So I think that is one of the issues they will have to think about um, before they could get to an equilibrium in the Salter-Swan model. <laughs> you need a market clearing interest rate. Thank you. Um, if, if I might be allowed, can I just make one very small point as well about income inequality? Yes, absolutely. And that it's true that income inequality in China today is higher than everywhere in the world except three countries. But Chinese income inequality is quite different from the income inequality that we see elsewhere in the world. Most of China's income inequality comes from an east-west urban-rural divide. When you drill down income inequality statistics within well-specified small regions like cities or even larger regions, it is not hugely different from income inequality anywhere else for most of the world. But what that says is that while most of us have this feeling that you want to attack the problem of income inequality by somehow lifting the poor within different cities, actually, China's income inequality will be fixed by allowing the western part of China to become richer, to develop. That will be a huge load off of the income inequality statistics in China. And that's a very different kind of income inequality than you see anywhere else. Okay, um, we have another round of questions. So I, I need to mix it up a bit by going up top. So the woman who is in the second row up here. Okay, Professor Yu, uh, thank you very much. Um, I, my question is about the institution. When we talk about the uh, FDI, we normally talk about institution, but um, basically on the government, on the establishing level, um, Normally, we see uh, we see that uh, when where there is um, less established institution, it will normally deter FDI. But recently, I uh, listened to a lecture from Professor Soestring uh, on his uh, recent research that uh, for Chinese multinationals, actually they feel more comfortable about the corruption of the other markets they enter. Uh, and they see that the determinants uh, of the corruption is actually um, positively correla correlated with the um, number of the FDI establishing by uh, Chinese multinationals. So uh, my question is, how would you see uh, those, um, I mean, from the performance, from the adapting level of the Chinese firms, how would you see the future of the um, their performance in different uh, countries with different levels of institutions. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, the woman in the middle with the horizontal stripes. The, in the middle here, yeah. Hello, I'm currently an A-level student, so my question may sound a bit stupid. 
Okay, my question's on housing. As we know, like, housing has been a kind of important driving force for Chinese economy in the last decade. So what kind of role do you think like, housing played in the last decade? And how far do you think it could impact the redistribution of wealth in China? And do you think it will like, end up with like economic bubble like Japan did in the 1980s? Okay, thank you. I'm going to ask Linda to answer these two questions. Okay. Um, I see a lot of disappointed hands. Um, that's my Twitter handle. Um, if you tweet me the question, I, I promise I will tweet you back an answer. It might take several tweets yeah. <laughs> or a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, on the question of institutions, um, I wouldn't disagree with Saul anyways. I think he does great work and he's um, in the uh, management department here. Um, I think one of the interesting things about FDI and institutions is actually countries which are attracted to foreign direct investment have a good track record in terms of preserving that investment. So it's almost independent of the institutions in a lot of ways. Um, So um, what are Chinese firms more willing to accept? I've always thought I'm a lawyer, and um, when I first worked in China, I had very rigid views about law needs to be this, and this, this is how this works. And, and then what I realized was law is actually contextual. Um, if this is the system that you're used to, then what we would consider to be imperfectly protected property rights is not a deterrent in a system mm-hmm. where all they've ever had are worse protected property rights. So I think it's a very sort of, uh, it's a, it, is a, it is a very contextual issue. So I don't want to generalize about other markets, but certainly in China, that's one of the reasons why um, it hasn't deterred FDI despite having a weak legal system because its government doesn't expropriate. Um, and then, um, by the way, very well-phrased question and very tough question to answer in 10 seconds, um, which is um, housing, I think, I mean, there was no private housing really until 1998 in China. That's when they had housing reform, uh, to, which was completed in about 2001, um, where the allocated work units became private um, uh, housing, and it has increased by a lot. There's lots of re- reasons for this. Um, Chinese like uh, bricks and mortar. Britain's like bricks and mortar. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all do these days. Um, and so partly that's why they have a chance to invest in their housing, and they will. Partly it's because they have nowhere else to put their money, um, so the stock market or housing. So I think certainly it has had a very big role in, in terms of the Chinese economy. Um, and the bubble question is a very good question. Um, if you're interested, I actually I wrote a piece on it, um, and that's probably the best way to answer it, which is they may well have a housing bubble, but so long as it's not based on excessive leverage, it would be like a vanilla housing bubble. It bursts house, you know, play, is there such a thing? You know, it's not going to drag the whole system. It's not systemic, um, but it's more like lots of housing bubbles which burst, um, which don't pull down the entire international financial system like the way the U.S. did. Um, and I think it would hurt China a lot, um, but it wouldn't be uh, catastrophic. Maybe that is actually a good note to end yeah, on. Absolutely. It'll hurt, but it's not catastrophic. Yes, exactly. <laughs> as far as economics goes, that is good news. Yeah, that All is right. actually. Yeah. Okay. Now, I know lots of people still have questions. I apologize we cannot get to them. However, there is a book sale of Linda's book outside this theater, and Linda will be up here on stage signing books, so you can just you know, corner her again with one of your questions. Um, I need to close the evening now, and it remains only for me well, to thank, first of all, you, the audience, for your attention and for all your great questions and your enthusiasm, but also invite you to thank me, our speaker, Linda Year, for a wonderful evening this evening. Thank you very much.